Uh, Let's begin with a time of prayer. Would you bow with me? God, we thank you so much for this time that we have as your people. Gather around your table to lift our voices in song, to lift our hearts in prayer, to, to call one another to this experience of worship where we, we believe, we're convinced, God, that you change us and transform us. We're thankful this morning for our, our sister congregation in Bar Church, for the ways that you have worked through that ministry and through uh, that, that, that space where you're, you're calling people into relationship with you in, in, a, in a time and in a way that is accessible, that's welcoming, and God, we just we thank you for all the, the members of, of Southern Hills who have invested in Bar Church, who continue to invest in Bar Church, and we pray that you would bless that community, that congregation, and that you would help us to continue in this partnership together to reach the, the, the place you've you put us, to reach this Abilene community. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways that it, it touches our lives and our hearts and our souls, and we pray this morning for better days. We pray for you to, to lead us into experiences and, and encounters that give us hope and give us strength and, and, and help us experience your goodness and your grace. We thank you for your son. We thank you for who he is to us, what he means to us, and we ask you to help us be more like him every single day, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. So I was, I was looking at a 20-year-old picture, and it was a picture of a young woman. Her, her head was, was this just kind of, it, it was a bright picture where, where she had blonde hair and deep blue eyes, and her, her smile was, was not just brilliant, but almost blindingly white. And it, it was an old enough picture that it wasn't as sharp as maybe I would have liked it to be, but I could definitely get a sense of, of who this woman was when that picture was taken. I'm going to call her Linda. She was 21 years old when that photograph was made, and it was taken in a time in her life when she had overcome an awful lot. She'd had a difficult and challenging childhood. She'd survived that. She's, got, she's gotten to a place where she was just about to, to graduate from college. She'd been dreaming about becoming a fourth grade teacher. She had dreams about falling in love and getting married and having children. And, and I know so many of us share different versions of those dreams, but these dreams belong to Linda. And she was excited. She was filled with anticipation about what the next chapter in her life held for her. And that's when she ran into a Christian preacher and evangelist that I'm sure some of you have at least heard of, but maybe some of you actually have met. His name is Stanley Ship. She ran into Stanley, right? She had just a semester left of school, and he started to talk with her about faith. He started to share the good news of the gospel with her. And at first, she just thought, you know, she'd been to church here and there throughout her life, and she just wasn't sure that that was something she was serious about. But the more Stanley talked to her, and again, if you ever had a conversation with Stanley, you know the gift that he had to connect with people. He was able to to bring her to the place where she was willing to go to, to have a Bible study at his house with, with other college students. And so every week on, on a particular evening, they would come together to Stanley's living room and he would open up God's word and, and try to share to the best of his ability 
what life Jesus was calling them to. And Linda wanted that life with part of, 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 her, of her heart, but she was also struggling with it because Stanley was clear to hear her that it, it was demanding, that it was a commitment, that it was who she was promising to be for the rest of her life if that's what she was going to, to decide. And so she was really good at coming for a while, and then every once in a while, you know, she'd get to where she wasn't really coming, and then one week would leave, lead to the next, and she'd get to the place where she hadn't been to the study in six weeks or eight weeks, and, and Stanley would always call her, ask her how she was doing, and, and somehow or another, he would find a way to remind her of how important it was that she come to this place where she could really make a decision for Christ. And he always found a way to get to her, and so she'd start to go back. And so this push and pull, it went on for over a year, where Linda would draw close to, to making that decision and then decide, I'm not sure that I'm ready for it. And finally, one cold November night, right after the Bible study, Linda said, you know what, I'm ready. I, I want to put my past behind me. I, I want to start a new chapter. I, I want a different kind of life than the life I've been living, and I'm ready to make this commitment. I'm ready to make this choice. And so that picture that I was holding, where she was smiling and, and filled with joy, it was taken on the night of her baptism. And I'm, I'm telling you, you could see the real and lasting freedom that she felt in that moment. You, you could see just this gleam in her eyes that came from a, a hope that was, was going to carry her through. And and basically, I guess what I would say is it felt like it was a picture of Linda feeling as much happiness as a person could feel. But three weeks later, this phone call comes out of the blue from her grandfather. And he says, there's been a horrible accident. Your mom and dad are gone. They're both, they're gone. And in that moment, Linda's heart broke into a million shattered pieces. And she was filled with anger at God. Because she had just given her life to Christ. And she felt like what that meant is that, that Christ should be taking care of her life, protecting her, that, that every single day she'd be getting better and better. And, and it had felt that way up until this phone call. And now it felt like God wasn't taking her anywhere. In fact, she wasn't sure that God was, was with her at all. She was in the worst place she'd ever been in, and she, she couldn't see a way out. She, she wasn't sure that she could keep going. I want you to hold Linda in your heart. Because we're going to come back to her in just a few minutes. That feeling of, of despair and confusion and disappointment. That what's happening in life, it doesn't fit with our expectations of what life with God is supposed to feel like. Because as we find the Israelites this morning in the story of the Exodus, and, and we're kind of reaching now a place just past the moment when God has miraculously not only delivered them from the oppression of Pharaoh, but he has rescued them through that amazing pathway of the Red Sea where he's used this strong wind to create a safe valley that they could cross through and they could go into this new life that he's promised them, right? They're, they're in that place, they're on that journey, and they're following 
Moses, their leader, and he's taking deliberate steps towards that future, this journey to the promised land, this, this better land where better days are waiting for them. And, and they're, they're excited about it, right? At the beginning of that journey, just moments after that Red Sea experience, they're filled with, with this sense of, of trust and hope. They're trusting in God because of what they've experienced and what they've seen. They know that he has the power and the love to rescue them from anything. And, and they're hoping because they've experienced this idea, not just in theory, but this promise, these words, this concept that, that God is making come true for them. And that is that, that he is not only powerful enough, but he's willing to do whatever it takes to take them where he says he's leading them. Their God is a God who does what he says. And so if he says to them, I promise you this is what's going to happen, well, then they're going to hope and they're going to trust and they're going to believe for all of about a chapter. Uh, they, in fact, I would say all of about half a chapter because in Exodus 14, they're delivered from the Red Sea. And then in Exodus 15, they have a worship service to thank God for delivering them from Pharaoh and the water and all that. And still, while you're in Exodus 15, they start to struggle with their hope and their faith and their trust. And that's because they expected to come out of the other side of the Red Sea and end up in the promised land in no time at all. And what's happening is that they are journeying to the promised land through the wilderness, and the wilderness is bigger than they ever expected. And when you're in the wilderness, you know, one of the best definitions of the wilderness is there's something big enough out there to eat you, right? Like, it's, it's dangerous, um, and even if there's things that are big enough out there to eat you and attack you, you're also going to struggle on the other side to find anything to eat yourself. And so they're, they're struggling. The first thing that happens is they realize, while they're out there in that hot, dusty wilderness, is that they're thirsty. And they're not just a little thirsty, they feel like they're dying of thirst. So they go to Moses and they're like, hey, we don't know how long this trip's going to be, but it's already been longer than we wanted. I mean, can you imagine how many times already Moses has had to threaten to pull the station wagon over because somebody says, are we there yet? Right? No, we're not there yet. Okay, well, I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. I mean, all of us have been on road trips. These are the two top complaints, Right? And so they were thirsty. We need you to do something about it. And so they come across this little pool of water and they think it's what they've been waiting for. And they, they get down there and they take a sip of it and it's bitter. It's bad. You can't drink it. So understandably, they're angry about it. They go to Moses and they say, hey, you got to do something about this. And so he takes this piece of wood and he hits up. No, he takes the piece of wood. He puts it in the water and God uses that wood to turn the water into something sweet and that's safe to drink. Right? And, and so they, they get what they need in the moment. Then they get to a place where uh, after, you know, they're not dying of thirst anymore, it gives them the ability to pay attention to the fact that they're hungry now. First their thirst was distracting them, now that's gone, so they need to eat. 
And they could slaughter all their livestock, I suppose, to eat. But if they do that right at the beginning of the journey, they're not going to have enough. And they know that. And so they go to Moses. And he says, okay. He goes to God. God says, fine. If they're hungry, I'll give them quail and manna from heaven. I'll give them food from the sky. Is that good enough? Well, yeah, it's good enough. Except for once they start eating, then a few days pass and they realize how thirsty they still are. And you see how this is going to go. And it's frustrating for them because this is the brand new world that God has called them into. And they were nervous, I promise you. They had to have a sense back in Exodus 14 when God's saying, you know, trust me. Come across this this valley where you have to trust me to hold up these two shifting walls. Just, I'm trustworthy, I promise, just trust me. Hey, there's a part of you when somebody keeps telling you to do that, you start to wonder, is there a reason I shouldn't be trusting you? You know, is something going to be, be so different and so foreign to me and so alien to me that I'm just not going to know what to do? I remember back when uh, Lauren was pregnant for the first time and all these well-intentioned people in our lives, older people who had already survived children, would say to us, your whole life's going to change. Your whole life's going to change. And I got to the point where I wanted to tell people, you know, that's not that helpful. I have no frame of reference. What they should have told me is sleep while you still can. That's what they should have told me, right? But they told me your whole life's going to change. Okay, that's kind of what's going on here, right? So they step into a new life, and they have to have some sense of apprehension of the fact that they can't predict it. They don't know what's going to come next, so they step out into this new world. That's always hard. But it's even harder when you start to figure out what it's really going to mean to live in that new world. Right? That first step that they had to take to walk between those walls of water and the Red Sea. That first step, it takes all kinds of courage, but it's every step on the other side that's going to take more than courage. It's going to take everything they have. They can't turn around. They have to to keep walking. They have to keep going. And, And they're so frustrated because they wanted the promised land to be close. They wanted the promised land to be right there, and it isn't. And it's, it feels like every step they're taking, instead of it pulling them into a better and better way of life, it's just taking them farther and farther into a wilderness that can't sustain life. When you look around and you feel like the place you are is a place where you're not really going to be able to keep going Well, you start to respond the way the Israelites do. I relate very much to the Israelites in this story. It's it's easy for us to be judgmental and think they should just, you know, lean into and depend on God. That's always easier when life's going so well, you don't really have to lean in too hard. You don't really have to depend all that much. You just lean in a little bit. You just depend a little bit. But when you have to, you have to depend all the way. When you have to lean in all the way, that's when you find out Man, it's, it's one of the most difficult things we can ever do. We, we think we've, we've grown. I think I've matured in the life of faith until I get to a place when faith is all I have. And I want a refund. Right? That's why they say things like, take us back to slavery in Egypt. All they're saying is, take us back to a place where even though it was bad, things made sense. 
Take us back to a place when we knew exactly what Tuesday was going to be like and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. This whole we don't know what's going to happen when we wake up in the morning and we're not exactly sure when the quail and the manna are going to appear and we're not exactly sure how much we're going to be able to carry with us and we're not going to be able to carry enough water so we're going to have to keep asking for God to give us water. This whole push and pull and back and forth, this doesn't feel good, which is another way of saying They don't like what freedom feels like because they're so used to being slaves. They don't don't like what freedom feels like because it's unpredictable. And you don't know. And you have to trust. And I relate. Well, we're going to pick up the story here in Exodus chapter 17. And we're going to read together as they continue this back and forth with God. Exodus 17, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sinai, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded them. You see how different that verse would go if they were getting to write it themselves? They wouldn't be going from place to place. They'd go to one place. They'd go to the promised land. That'd be the end of it. They're having to go from place to place. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. This has already happened before. So they quarreled with Moses And said, give us water to drink. I don't know what that quarrel sounded like, but it wasn't this short, okay? And Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? And then he pulls out the big guns, right? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there. And they grumbled against Moses. I want to pause real quickly. The opposite of faith in Exodus is grumbling. It's not doubt. That's important. We tend to act like the opposite of faith is doubt. The opposite of faith is grumbling against God. Because it proves you don't trust God. Right? They don't doubt there's a God. Trust me. They doubt in his goodness. They doubt whether or not he's going to care for them. They doubt whether or not he's going to do what they, they feel like he needs to do. So they grumble against Moses And they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Moses cried out to the Lord, what do you want me to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Now, you know that staff, right? He didn't just strike the Nile. It's also what he held out over the Red Sea. It's a symbol that God's getting ready to do something. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah, which are both just kind of bitter words, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Not is there a God, but is God for us, right? Is God with us? Our life with God is a journey that includes a destination, but our life with God is never just a destination, And I'm pretty sure if we could figure this out on our own terms, we would choose an instant destination over a journey every single time. You know, like, if you and I could 
could say that we want to give our lives to Christ and we, we want to give the rest of our lives our future to God. We, we would love it if there was a way to, to just go to sleep and wake up when it's time to step right into heaven, right? That, that if we could just get there all of a sudden, all at once, and all of our, our difficulties and all our struggles and all the things we have to put up with, if we could just fast forward through all of that and get to the good part, that's what we would do. And of course, there's a clear destination when it comes to our journey of faith. In the Old Testament's the promised land. The New Testament, it's, it's heaven. It's the, it's the new promised land, right? But the reality is there's still this journey of faith that we have to deal with, that we have to live through. If we're going to give the rest of our lives to God, it makes sense that God would then want us to live our lives, You know, too often I think we reduce what's going on in the gospel to this transaction between, you know, I give a promise, then God gives me all the the promises I want in return, and we don't really think about anybody else. There was this this preacher in the, the kind of the revivalist era of the United States. You know, he'd go around and he'd preach in these these tents, and they would actually put sawdust down for people to keep the dust down while they were preaching. His name was Billy Sunday. He was this uh, ex-baseball player who had turned into a preacher, and he was kind of a, you know, B-list celebrity. And so when you combine a, a ball player and a preacher, you can draw a pretty good crowd, or at least you could a long time ago. And they, he would preach, and he would say, you know, the best thing that could happen to you tonight is that you would hit the sawdust trail, which he's talking about the center aisle. You'd come down here, you'd give your life to Jesus, and you'd walk out that door, and you'd get hit by a Mack truck and go straight to heaven. People walk down that sawdust trail after that sales pitch. Right? That, there's something about us where if we could skip the intervening years, we would think, well, that's great, which I guess if it was just you and Jesus, it would be great. But it isn't just you and Jesus. It's you and Jesus and the world he died to save. There's a journey here. It's a journey we go through not only for ourselves but for other people. We walk alongside one another and we learn how to trust. You can't just decide to trust. You can't trust in your imagination. You can't read about trust. You have to learn to trust. And the only way you learn to trust is you go through situations and moments that require it. It's this journey of faith. It's exactly how the Israelites are feeling and what they're struggling with here in Exodus 17. They're sick and tired of the journey. They're sick and tired of waiting on the promised land. And they want God to know it. And, and, and I think the reason is waiting feels familiar in slavery, right? It's built in. You're trapped. You're stuck. You're waiting. It's not like it's good. It's not like it's something that you you want to have to experience. It's that you expect to experience to have to wait when you're in slavery. But you don't expect to have to wait when you're in freedom. Waiting in freedom doesn't feel like freedom. It feels like freedom delayed, right? It it feels like it's it's just something that's not really happening. And so when God says no, what what really is going to take place is that you're going to step farther and farther into the experience of deliverance. You're going to experience more and more freedom every day. But it's not going to just happen all at once. It's going to be built up over the rest of this journey. It's going to be built up over the rest of this lifetime. Do you have the strength to be patient, not in slavery, but to be patient in freedom? Man, that's hard. 
It's challenging. It feels like sometimes all that the people of God do in Exodus is wait. And God says, I I need you to find the strength to keep being patient, to keep walking, to keep trusting. I promise you, God says, it'll be be more than worth it. Just keep following. Now, here's what's interesting about this story. They're so focused on getting to the promised land, they don't realize what's happening while they're still stuck in the wilderness. Because they're not looking for it. They're only looking one place, right? It's the streets of gold and the crystal sea. That's what, that's what well, actually, they don't say it that way, right? They talk about milk and honey. And they're looking around the wilderness and they think, I don't see any milk and honey. All I see is danger and uncertainty. And I've had enough of that. But here's what's interesting. Just in the course of a couple of chapters in Exodus, God does something to the wilderness along the way that it's easy for us to miss, just like the Israelites missed it. See, because it's easy to look at a wilderness and decide that it, it doesn't have what you need to keep you going unless you're going through that wilderness with God by your side. And then you find out that a wilderness we have to cross with God in our lives isn't really a wilderness. It somehow becomes the promised land in disguise. It's under the surface. It's not what they're looking for. It's certainly not where they're looking. There's no milk. But there is water that's sweet to drink. And there isn't any honey flowing anywhere except for the fact that there's bread that tastes like honey falling from the sky. That the people of God, they haven't been able to walk into the promised land yet, but what's happening is the promised land is walking with them along the way. The promised land is there. God is there. Blessing them in the midst of the wilderness. Guiding them in the midst of the darkness. It's not the kind of promised land they want, but it is the kind of promised land they need because they aren't there yet. God finds a way to reach them anyway. So I was looking at this 20-year-old picture of Linda on the night of her baptism. And, you know, the reason I was looking at the picture is because she had just called Stanley for the first time in 10 years. And I just happened to be with him at his house when the phone call came in. And, and he had rushed over to a closet and grabbed a coat, and he reached up, he got this old yellow shoebox down. It was full of pictures. And he kind of rifled through all the pictures, and he found this picture of Linda. Blonde hair, deep water blue eyes, this brilliantly shining smile and he hands it to me and he says uh, she just called and she asked me to come over because she wants she wants to reconnect she wants to to visit and I'm going to take you with me and it was on that car ride over that Stanley told me the story of what she'd been through and how when she'd lost both of her parents and that that tragedy came crashing into her life how angry she had She'd been with, with God and how trapped she felt. And it wasn't just something she was feeling. It was something she was going through. She ended up 
experiencing a, a deep valley of depression that lasted for years. She, she was in and out of, of mental institutions that were trying to, to help her get better, and, and she ended up not finishing school, and then she ended up not becoming a teacher, and she never met anyone and fell in love. She never got married. She never had children. She didn't have brothers or sisters. She was, in many ways, on her own, isolated. And she she just got to the place where she cut off all the other relationships that she had. It's why she hadn't talked to, to Stanley in, in almost a decade. And I, the more he talked, the more I thought, maybe you should have done this on your own, Stanley. Like, what, what am I supposed to do in this moment here? But by then we, were, we had arrived and he was pulling me out of the car nicely, but he was pulling me out of the car and it was, it was a rough part of town. It was an old, rundown apartment complex. There, there were boards in the windows. And, you know, you know that, like, car alarms and police sirens and loud stereos kind of playing in all the directions from every, every direction and distance, all that. You know how it is when you get out and you're starting to feel like, I'm, I'm glad I'm with somebody in this neighborhood. And we, we went three flights of stairs up to her apartment or the door where there was the number that we thought was, okay, it's the right door. And we knock and no answer. So I start to think, okay, maybe we're not at the right place. And I start, of course, I, go, I start to leave first. And Stanley grabs, nicely, but he grabs me. And he says, we're at the right place. Knock again. I knocked again. And that's when she opened the door. And then I was sure we were at the wrong place. I mean, her face was weathered, her hair didn't look blonde anymore, and it was cut really close to her head, almost as, as short as mine is right now. She, she had these eyes that didn't look blue anymore. They just kind of looked like a pale gray. And, and her body, she was as thin as a rail. But then she saw Stanley. And he just kind of broke into the house, past the threshold, and started hugging her neck and singing out her name. And I'm telling you, I watched a physical transformation take place right in front of me. I mean, this smile, this slow, warm smile spread across her face, and it was the smile from the picture. I mean, after everything she'd been through, it hadn't changed. And her eyes, I mean, maybe, maybe it was just the way I was seeing her, or a shift of light, but they suddenly looked blue again. And then she let out this laugh, and it filled that little apartment with joy. And, and she invited us in and had us sit down at, at her little kitchen table there. And she just went right into it. I mean, Stanley barely introduced me. It was like she was used to Stanley just having random people with him, which I think is exactly what it was like with him. So she, she goes right in and she says, I, I called you because something's happened. She said, you know, after that, that phone call, when I found out about my mom and my dad, I was so angry at God. I was so angry that he had let that happen to me. I mean, I'd given my life to him and he was supposed to watch over my life. And I... I felt like he'd left me all alone. I was in the worst place I'd ever been, and I couldn't find a way out. And I almost didn't get out, Stanley. I almost, I almost didn't get out. And I, I didn't want to talk to God anymore, and I didn't want to talk to anybody who would make me try to talk to God anymore. And so I, I was done. 
She said, but but something happened to me. And I started thinking about those Bible studies we had and, and the times that we were studying scripture together. And I, I suddenly, it was like my eyes were open and I, I saw that even though I'd been through so many bad things, that I thought that meant God had abandoned me. But, but I'm starting to think God was with me through all of the bad. And then for the next hour and a half, she started sharing story after story of all these people who had, had been there for her in just the right time when she needed it the most. And she, she talked about moments when she was just about to give up and somehow she would feel this strength well up inside of her. And she, she talked about other times when, when she needed healing more than anything else, and she received it. And she said, you know, I just kind of looked back at all that, and I, when it was happening, I thought it was just coincidence and good luck, and I, and I felt like I deserved a little good luck after all the bad things that have happened. But I'm telling you, I am convinced that that was God. There wasn't luck. There wasn't coincidence. It was God putting those places and those moments and those experiences in my life when I needed them the most. And, and she said, look, I... I'm not where I want to be. I'm I'm not where I want to be yet, but I believe that God is with me right here where I am, and I want to believe that he's taking me to a better place. But in the meantime, I, I want to reach the people around me in this building and in this neighborhood to remind them that God's love doesn't mean bad things don't happen to you, but that God's love will carry you through all the bad things that happen to you. I forgot that, Stanley, and I I remember it now. But I don't remember nearly anything you taught me in those Bible studies, and I need you to help teach me again so I can teach them. I set up a time for them to start meeting together again. I wasn't really listening at that point. I was just overwhelmed at all that she'd been through and how alone she'd felt And then somehow she had this moment, this moment of of spiritual insight to realize that God's love for us doesn't mean that we get what we want right when we want it, the way that we want it. God's love carries us through the waiting. Because we, we may have to wait on entering into the promised land, but we don't have to wait on the God who gives us the promises. And yet, because we think we know exactly what it's going to look like when we get there, and because it's what we're foc- that destination is what we tend to, to be focused on more than anything else, I think you and I run the very real temptation like the Israelites before us to miss the fact that we're not just traveling to the promised land. We're traveling with it. We're traveling with it. I mean, that's what, that's what Linda figured out. And it wasn't an easy lesson to learn. It was, it was the most difficult thing that, that she'd ever had to learn. Not, 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 not that all the difficulty she was, was going through was what God was trying to use to teach her to, to see. It's just that somehow or another, when she was going through all of that, that struggle and all of that suffering... That's that's the only place she could look. 
And, and if she could manage any, any ability to look beyond that moment, all she could think about was a time when everything in her life was going to be perfect. And that was what she was, that's what she was living in hope of. But what she didn't realize she could hope for is a Savior who would come to her in the midst of her life being anything but perfect and rescuing her anyway. We're not just traveling to the promised land, brothers and sisters. We're traveling with it. But in order for us to experience that goodness along the way, we have to search for it. We have to look for it. We have to reach out for it because I promise you, it's under the surface. It's in disguise. It's real and it's true and it's not just your imagination, but it takes a choice to see it and experience it and to stop acting like all the good things that happen in our life are just good luck or coincidence or every good and perfect thing in your life comes from God. Not from you, not from luck, from God. So may we find the courage to experience the promised land that we're not just searching for, but the promised land that's searching for us. Because, brothers and sisters, if we have to wait until the situations we find ourselves in only go the way we want them to go and everything turns out the way we want it to turn out every time we invest any time or energy into anything, that, that what we're really, what we're expecting to have happen in this whole commitment and relationship with God we have is that we're never going to have to do a hard or challenging or difficult thing again or we're never going to have to wait again. We're, God hasn't promised any of those things to us. You know what God's promised us? I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. But to, to know it, we have to look for it. We have to reach out for it. We're going to sing together now. Mark's going to join me on stage. And as we do, I just, I pray that in this coming week, we look for all the places, not so much that we're entering the promised land, but the promised land is breaking in to our lives. Let's stand together and sing now.